You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. It is a delight and a joy to be with you this morning. Would you turn your attentions to the screen as we read our text for today? Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Eliamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and they said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was spoken by the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. He said, in the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on my people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Skipping down to verse 36, Acts 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, Peter said. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, then brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. So last week, Greg shared a story about Isaac catching a home run baseball at a Cincinnati Reds Reds game, and it, it got me to thinking about a similar experience that I had had at a Braves game. I was sitting on the second deck of Turner Field, Rip Turnerfield, on the third baseline, and I was, and this is a very important detail to this story, 
completely uninterested in the game. I had not brought a glove to the game expecting to catch a ball like Isaac had. In fact, I had brought a book to this game. I wasn't even paying attention. I couldn't tell you who was up to bat when it happened. I just felt the atmosphere around me shift. You know when something important is about to happen, you can feel it. And so I turned my attention back to the field and I saw a small white dot coming towards our section. And in a matter of less than a second, the following went through my mind. That looks like a baseball. <laughs> that baseball looks like it's coming towards our section. But surely, the two inches that that baseball is going to hit in this entire massive stadium, surely they won't be anywhere near me. And then, bam, that baseball hit me on my side, bounced off of my hip bone four rows back, and some redneck yahoo from North Georgia took it home. <laughs> I want it to be like, you're welcome that I threw my body in front of that 100 mile per hour ball for you to take it home. Chivalry is dead. And all this time, my older brother was at the game with me, whose dream it had been his entire life to catch a ball at a Braves game, who had brought his glove, who had also seen that small white dot coming towards our section, who had also thought in a matter of seconds, this is my chance. I'm finally going to get a ball, and in the same matter of seconds realized it was just too far outside of his reach, but close to his younger sister, younger athletically incompetent sister, and he stood at the other end of the row of seats screaming, Caitlin, why didn't you get that ball? I can't believe you didn't get that. What are you even good for? All the time, I was trying not to cry of embarrassment, of physical pain. Um, it was quite a moment that I will never forget. I was actually telling that story to Kevin and Maria last week after chapel, and Maria said, well, how old were you guys when that happened, thinking that we must have been children from our behavior? I was like, Maria, that happened like three years ago. <laughs> speaking of Kevin and Maria, speaking of the Browns, aren't we excited that Dr. Kevin Brown is our new president? I mean, are we like... Did you guys, did you catch his, um, did you happen to be here, and by happen to be here, I mean mandatorily be here last week when he gave the convocation address? I mean, he can quote, you know he's smart, because he can quote dead Greek philosophers as easily and as often as Damarian Johnson tweets. So that is saying something. That is saying something. Well, I don't have video footage of the moment from the Braves game, but I did scour the internet this weekend. I didn't have a lot to do. And I think I found a picture from this moment, from the moment right after that baseball smacked me on the hip and some guy three rows back took it. I think I found the picture. The internet is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. I know I didn't think I would find it either, but I did. So last week, Greg told us that he introduced our encounter series. And um, last week, he told us that what we're studying this 
this semester, Acts. It's really the second half of a two-part book, Luke and Acts, written by the same author. And if you'll remember, the Gospel of Luke covers the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, that salvific work that Jesus does for us. And Acts, the very beginning of Acts, is actually kind of should probably be tagged on at the end of Luke because the beginning of Acts covers Jesus' ascension back to the Father, going back to be Lord and King over all the earth. And it covers the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is what we'll talk about today. The entire salvific work of Jesus. It is his incarnation. He comes to be with you in your suffering in this world. He died on the cross to make you right with Jesus. He rose to give you power over sin and death. He ascended to sit at the right hand of Father to be the king over the entire world to create a just and good society, redeeming systems and societies. And he sent the Holy Spirit to empower you to be like him. That is salvation. Don't miss it, the whole thing. But before we go any further in our story today, I do wanna just stop and review a little bit. I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page here in our biblical knowledge or in our relationship with God. So just a quick review of the main players in this whole story of God, story of us thing, right? So um, our lead actor in this is the Godhead or the Trinity. This is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard of him. The Godhead. He is the author of our lives, the judge of creation. He is humble and loving and kind. He is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And he is omnipresent, meaning all this world belongs to him. This is God. He is the main actor in the story. But good news for you and I, we get to be the supporting actor or actress. Did you ever try out for a musical or a play in high school and you got the chorus? But at least you got to be on stage, right? We get to be a part of the story too. That's humanity. That is you and I. And if you can't remember the story of humanity, we're going to review it very quickly and very basically here. So act one in the story of humanity. I like to call it, this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> God created the world. Humanity sinned. The world was broken, evil death, suffering, broken air conditioning units in Kinlaw Library, they all entered the world at this moment. But God did not leave us on our own. He had a rescue plan in mind. And Jesus came to earth to set all things right. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus became 100% man, Philippians 2 tells us, he, God humbled himself and took on the nature of humanity. 100% human, 100% God. My boss, Joe Bruner, would say 100% God became 100% human, 100% God. He likes to say 100% a lot. Um, but Jesus became 100% human because a perfect blood sacrifice was the only thing 
that would atone, big churchy word, meaning make right, that would atone for our sins. So Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and he gave himself so that you and I could be made right with God. On the cross, the cross became the place where God opened himself back to to humanity. It became the place where every person has the ability to know God because of the cross, because of Jesus. And then we come to Act 3, the church. Enter the Holy Spirit. So before Jesus left, before he ascended, if you remember last week Greg taught in Acts 1-8, before Jesus exits stage up, he said to his followers, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Before Jesus went to the cross in John 16, he told his followers, I tell you that it is good for you that I go away, because unless I go away, the advocate, or another name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, then I will send him to you. Why do you think that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the savior of the world, the Lord over all, why do you think Jesus would say, it's actually better for you that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come? Sometimes I like to think that if like the physical person, if Jesus was with me every day, I would live a perfect life. If he was with me every day, I would know exactly what to do, who to talk to, where to go, what to wear. Such a hard decision what to wear. Sometimes I think if Jesus were with me all the time, it would be perfect, but Jesus said it's actually better if I go physically from this earth, so that I could send the Holy Spirit to you. I wonder if maybe better than just being with Jesus is being made like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So our passage for today, Acts 2, what we just read, it occurs approximately 50 days after Passover, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, during another Jewish festival called Pentecost. 50 days, 50 means, penta means 50, as in 50 days after Passover. And our text for today, it's famous. You guys have probably heard sermons on Acts 2 before. Most Christian churches are going to celebrate Pentecost or the coming of the Holy Spirit every year. Um, Some of you might, if you grew up in a church where they had Um, vestments on the altar. That's a fancy word for cloth. It might have been red during Pentecost, or there might have been ribbon dancers during Pentecost to represent the tongues of fire that descended on the followers of Jesus. Pentecost is meant to be an exciting and expressive moment. And it's important because it's it's the beginning of the early church, the body of believers in Jesus. If you remember that up until this point, Jesus had given his followers the commandment to stay put in Jerusalem, to pray together and to wait expectantly for the gift that God would send them. This is what Greg taught on last week about the importance of being ready, of waiting expectantly, glove in hand, ready to catch the ball. 
or in my case, not catch the ball. But let's replace that metaphor of catching a ball at a Major League Baseball game with waiting on the presence of God. Where do we go to wait on God? What do we do? How do we act? What do we wear? And what exactly do we receive when God comes? You know, Isaac got a baseball to take home, and he got a signed letter to put on his wall, and he got a really great story to tell. And his dad, ever the preacher, got a sermon illustration. But what do we get? What do we receive when God shows up? Well, when we look back at our text for today, I think we see three different things that the early followers of Jesus received in Acts 2. The first is that they received a word of God for salvation. So Peter, when he, um, <clears throat> when he gets up in Acts 2 at verse 14 through 41, we didn't read it all today, but he gives an entire sermon. He begins to proclaim Jesus as the true Messiah who saves. When God shows up, Jesus is proclaimed as Lord and King. When God shows up, Jesus is the star. If you have a question as to whether or not God is involved in something, is Jesus the center? That might be a good question to ask. When God shows up, Jesus is the king. The second thing that we see in our text today, it comes from those first couple of verses, the wind that came into the house and the tongues of fire that fell on all the believers. We see a cleansing presence of God. So in the Old Testament, when God would show up in really big ways, he would show up oftentimes in fire and smoke. If you remember um, the Old Testament, when the Israelites received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, do you remember the mountain was actually enveloped in a huge cloud of smoke and fire? And do you remember when the Hebrew people were delivered from slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land? They were led by a pillar of fire during the, during the night and a pillar of clouds during the day. The followers of Jesus, these Jewish followers of Jesus in this moment would recognize this wind and these tongues of fire as evidence that this was a work from their God, that God was present. And fire throughout the Old Testament represents a cleansing. God's fire is a cleansing moment. You know when you want to take metal and you want to uh, get the pure metal from maybe like a rock? You heat it up so that the impurities and the dross come to the surface and then you clean it off so that you have a pure metal to work with. Fire is purifying throughout the scriptures. When God shows up, people are made holy and they're made humble. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, when he encountered the holy God of Israel, his response was this, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. When God shows up, people are made holy and humbled. And the third thing that we see in Acts 2 is that when God shows up, people are empowered. His people are empowered to do service to the world. So... In Acts 2, 4, we see that tongues of fire came and landed on each of the believers, and they began speaking in languages that they did not know. 
I will just admit to you that I had a little bit of hesitation preaching this morning because I knew we would get into um, talking about the gifts, the spiritual gifts of tongues, of speaking in tongues. And um, I, some of you might not even know what this is. If you're not a believer, if you've never heard of it, you might not really know what the gift of tongues is. And then some of you might be Christians, but you might come from a tradition that's very skeptical of this gift of the Holy Spirit. You might believe, many Christians believe that maybe this doesn't even happen anymore. Um, or if you're a Pentecostal in the congregation, you might be waiting on the rest of us to catch up with you. I don't know. So we all, we might be in different places as we talk about the gifts of tongues, but there is a gift that many people receive, you might have it, um, where you begin to pray into, in a prayer language, and it's meant for the edification of the body of believers. It's a prayer language to God. But Dr. Keener, as I was researching for today's passage, Dr. Keener in his commentary on Acts, he makes a distinction between that type of gift of tongues and what was happening here in Acts 2. The believers here weren't speaking in a prayer language. They were speaking in actual languages of the earth that they did not previously know. The Lord gave them languages that they did not previously know. This is really important. It seems to be really important to the author of Luke, or the author of Acts, because he's making a point here. Um, he's reinforcing a very major theme that runs throughout Acts, and that is this point, that the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is for everyone. It's for everyone. It transcends cultural, ethnic, and linguistic barriers. This is huge for these Jewish followers of Jesus because the Jews had survived thousands of years of persecution and colonization by foreign powers by being religiously and ethnically exclusive. They had very strict rules about what they ate, about whom they married, about what they did. They were set apart. They were God's chosen people set apart. They hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans who had been Jews who had intermarried with other um, groups in the area. And don't even get me started on the people they called the Gentiles, everybody who wasn't a Jew. So this moment for these Jewish followers of Jesus, for these first Christians, this moment was huge because Jesus had broken open access to God. Every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth was included in this plan, in Jesus' plan for salvation. I think it's important to make a quick note here that we're careful to read the text and not to read into the text. This moment when God is demonstrating radical inclusivity here, he is opening wide the invitation to this new community while this is an invitation to everyone regardless of their ethnic background, in other words, no nation is left out of what God is doing and his promises, it is not an invitation to every cultural iteration of living that was present in the world at the time. This is not a full-sale baptism of every cultural practice, belief, lifestyle, or ritual. This is not a you-do-you moment in scripture. In fact, the Bible never says you do you. 
The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. The Bible says, surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is an invitation to come to Jesus and to be renewed and transformed. And it's an invitation for all of us to do that. The promise comes in Hebrews 10, 16. It says, this is the covenant I will make with them, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. They will be my people and I will be their God. This is the invitation to the world that we might be transformed by God, by the spirit of God in our inner being. So what do we receive when God shows up? This kind of experience of the Holy Spirit, it's happened at other times and places, not just in Acts 2. Similar corporate experiences of the Holy Spirit have happened. They happen throughout the rest of Acts and throughout the world at different moments. And one such moment was the Azusa Street Revival. William Seymour was an African-American preacher at the beginning of the 20th century. He was the son of former slaves, and he had grown up amid extreme poverty and racism in Louisiana in the 1800s. Eventually, he became a preacher, and he found himself in Los Angeles, California. His little congregation met at 312 Azusa Street, an old, rundown Methodist Episcopal church building. And God showed up in that little meeting of believers. A spontaneous revival broke out. Several members of the congregation began speaking in tongues in languages that they had never known before. Many were slain in the spirit. There was praying continually. People were miraculously healed. The revival went on for several weeks uninterrupted. There's a story um, that I read as I was researching of a Mayan man who was visiting the revival meeting, and he had heard a German woman speaking in tongue, speaking in his own language, and she didn't know what she was saying, but she was speaking the gospel, and he heard it and gave his life to Jesus. Those were the sorts of things that were happening at this Azusa Street revival. And one of the very interesting parts of it that the media particularly became interested in was the reality that there was racial unity at the beginning of this revival. Black, white, Latino men and women were worshiping and serving together. Now, the outside media definitely jeered at the very strange way in which these Christians were worshiping God. And eventually the Azusa Street revival died out, probably due to skepticism of outsiders, definitely due to the racism from inside the church, from other holiness Pentecostal leaders, and from personality conflicts within the leadership itself. I find it interesting that the Spirit of God was very clearly at work in this revival, but everything wasn't, all the problems weren't immediately fixed. But Azusa is credited with being the beginning of the worldwide Pentecostal movement. Many, many missionaries went out from Azusa to countries all over the world, and within two years, the movement had spread across the world. And now, the estimate sits at almost 500 million Pentecostal believers worldwide, many of them in the majority world. So what does it look like when God comes? 
One of the attributes of the Azusa Street Revival was that humility seemed to be wrapped in every fiber of its being, from the humility and love of its leader, William Seymour, to the humble church that it happened in itself. Nothing about this was showy. In fact, the first floor of this building had originally been built to be the stable for the horses, but Seymour had chosen the first floor to be the meeting room. God seems to be attracted to humility. And he's been known to display the very best of what heaven has to offer in a manger, in a stable. God's presence seems to be attracted to humility. So that is my invitation this morning to you, Asbury. Will you be humble before the Lord? When God Comes is the name of the documentary of the seven-day spontaneous revival that took place here in Hughes in February of 1970. I watched it last week as I prepped for this sermon, and very honestly, I found myself weeping as I listened to the testimony of what God did in this very place. Now, I tend to be emotional, so I kind of disregarded that. But then I also at the same time felt this overwhelming desire bubbling up in me, Lord, would you do this again? Would you do this again? We have so many folks with hearts that are hard, but I know if they just experienced you, I know it would make a difference. But I tend to have a very active spiritual imagination, and so I kind of disregarded that too. But then I thought after reading Acts 2 and delving into the scriptures this week, I thought, why wouldn't God do it again? We know that this is what he wants to do. He said, it is better that I leave so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you. Why wouldn't he want to do it again? This actually feels very much like the heart of God. So this morning, I want to invite you all, us to come as a community, to humbly come before the Lord and ask him to do it again. This is an invitation to commit to humbly pray and seek God to pour out his spirit on our community again this year. If we want to see God do miraculous things in our midst, we better get to the business of humbling ourselves before him and asking him to do what only he can do in you, in me, and in our world. So if you want to see that happen again, as we sing this last song, you're invited to the altar to pray. You can pray in your seat. But would you stand as we sing this last song and ask the Lord to fall on us again as a community?